Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening to both of us. This is how you have chosen to stimulate yourself. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. Uh, just moments ago, I was reading uh, online. That's what was happening. I was clicking around. I was wandering the internet. I was uh, procrastinating. Uh, I got lost. I don't know how it happened, but I wound up reading an essay on the Paris Review website by Julian Tepper the author of Balls. It's a novel called uh, Balls, which is available now from Barnacle Books. So there's a plug. Uh, maybe you read this essay. Maybe you're aware of it. Maybe not. Uh, anyhow, Tepper is a debut author. And as such, uh, he also works at a deli on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And it just so happens that Philip Roth, uh, the great author Philip Roth, is a regular customer at this deli or a, a semi-regular customer whenever he's in New York City. And so uh, Tepper, who reveres Roth, has just published his novel, Balls, his debut novel, uh, which incidentally involves testicular cancer. And uh, so Tepper sees Roth and he summons the courage and he approaches 
the great American man of letters, the legendary Philip Roth, and he hands him a copy of the novel Balls, and uh, Philip Roth receives Balls (laughs) warmly, uh, or as warmly as he can receive such a thing. And uh, this, according to Julian Tepper, is what Philip Roth had to say, and I quote, I would quit while you're ahead, really. It's an awful field, just torture, awful. You write and you write, and you have to throw almost all of it away because it's not any good. I would say just stop now. You don't want to do this to yourself. That's my advice to you. End quote. (laughs) Uh, Very encouraging. The attitude. Attitude. My mother would say uh, stuff about this to me when I was a kid, about attitude. That was a big thing with her. And uh, I seem to remember her on, you know, maybe more than one occasion, but I seem to remember her foisting an essay on me or an article in a newspaper or something like that. And it was titled, uh, Attitude is Everything or something to that effect. It was like it was like it was in Reader's Digest or something. And she would stick this in front of me and tell me to read it. And, uh, you know, I guess maybe... Uh, She sensed in me a certain kind of melancholy from a young age, a tendency toward uh, darkness or cynicism. She was already hedging. She was already already trying to steer me away from the abyss. And, And here I should mention that my mother is kind of a saint. Anyone who knows her. She's one of those rare people who is completely inoffensive to everyone she meets. It's like a, you know, just a really nice, kind, patient, and generally pretty happy person who never has a bad word to say about anyone. And incidentally, my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother, was just like that. So it would seem that this particular uh, fortunate genetic predisposition somehow skipped over me. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, do I agree with Philip Roth? Yes. Do I disagree with Philip Roth? Yes. Of course. Because I always want to have it both ways. And, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, he's right. Writing is terrible, and it's very hard a lot of the time, and there's a lot of frustration and a lot of defeat. But it's better than most jobs. Much better than most jobs uh, when you think about it. Because most jobs, if we're being honest, really suck. They (laughs) really... They really suck. They're terrible. And and writing is particularly nice, I would imagine, if you can get paid and celebrated like Philip Roth. But it would seem that I'm mistaken, judging by Mr. Roth's uh, comments. You know, I mean, he's had a great ride. And, you know, of course, we know that for every Philip Roth in the world, with his cabinet full of trophies and medals and his sizable cash advances, uh, there's what? 50,000 impoverished writers toiling in dreadful obscurity under the influence of serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Like 50,000 writers sitting slack-jawed in front of MacBooks, staring at a flashing cursor. So if it's this bad for him, like for Philip Roth, if, <laughs> if this is what he's come to after 60 years of almost nonstop critical and commercial success then I think it's safe to say that the rest of us are just completely fucked. (laughs) But, you know, uh, to be fair, to be fair, there are people who have a much brighter outlook. 
There are writers out there who see the glasses half full. There is a light in their eyes. They wake with the sun. They sing easily and without self-consciousness. They uh, dance freely and with great enthusiasm in public spaces. I don't know how it happens. Is it a choice? Is it DNA? Is Philip Roth speaking hard truth in his old age? Or is he simply a grumpy old man who has decided to embrace a resolutely bleak outlook as a way of issuing a combative kind of surrender in the face of impending mortality. I don't know. And I mean, I've tried to be more positive. I do try to be more positive, especially now that I'm a dad. I mean, I go through phases. I've been going through phases my whole life. You go through phases, right? You try to improve yourself. You read books. uh, And then you'll go through a phase where you read spiritual books. You read poetry. You read serious books about how to be a better human being. You try to embrace uh, the power of now. (laughs) You look at your food intensely before eating it. Uh, But what I found repeatedly, personally, is that I cannot fundamentally change my nature. Or I haven't been able to yet. And I want to. I mean, who wouldn't, right? I want to be happier. I don't want to be reflexively bleak. Or overly dark. Unnecessarily dark in a self-damaging kind of way, but I also don't want to live in denial and repress all negativity and pretend like everything's fine when everything, in fact, is not fine. You know, I don't want to wear one of those freakish clown smiles that is a a mask for a terrible and thinly-veiled sadness and deep fear. That makes me uncomfortable. I want to be at peace. Who doesn't want to be at peace? I want to be 99 years old, And I want to be dying, and I want to have my sense of humor. I want to have my wits about me. How do you get there? Like, what is the road? (laughs) Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is James Lasden. Very excited to have him here. He's written a memoir called Give Me Everything You Have, the subtitle of which is On Being Stalked. Uh, It's about his experience of being stalked over several years by one of his former students, one of his former MFA uh, creative writing students. It's a nightmare scenario, uh, particularly for those of you out there uh, who are writers or who who exist in this world. It's It's a story that you can probably relate to. And uh, the book is publishing on February 12th, next week, 2013, February 12th. And it will be available from the fine people at Farrar, 
Strauss, and Giroux. So let's get on with it. This is my conversation with James Lasden, the author of Give Me Everything You Have. I'm in my house in Woodstock, uh, outside the town of Woodstock, um, and I'm upstairs in the upstairs bedroom looking out onto the mountains. That sounds beautiful. It's very beautiful. It's a beautiful day, and there are a lot of white birches gleaming in the sunshine. Damn. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, I want to begin. I mean, congratulations on the book. It's it's very um, scary, <laughs> and yeah. it also feels very contemporary. You know, this is what you've been through and what you've written about here feels like something that, um, you know, obviously could only happen now or could only happen within the context of the last several years. So for, you know, my listeners, many of whom haven't read yet, why don't you give a broad overview of what the book is about? Well, it's about a prolonged cyber stalking experience um, that uh, I've been enduring um, at the hands of a former student who contacted me a couple of years after she graduated from a, an, a, uh, an MFA program, a woman in her 30s. Um, she asked if I would work with her on her novel. This was a couple of years after she had graduated, and I, I, I didn't have the time to work with her on the book. But I had admired the book a lot. I thought she was a good writer, and I wanted to help her. I put her in touch with my agent. She didn't want to take her on, but she put her in touch with an editor. And uh, in the course of this, she and I you know, had an email correspondence that was very friendly. I thought she was an interesting person, and I was happy to be in touch with her. At a certain point, um, she made it clear that she was expecting this to lead to an affair, and I had to make it clear that I wasn't interested. I was happily married. And initially, she took it very well, and it was fine. We went on corresponding. And then over time, she um, started just sending me more and more emails. Um, and, and at first, that was that was all. It was just a bit disturbing to get so many emails, and I answered fewer and fewer of them. And they became... Again, back onto the subject of having an affair and all the rest of it. And I realized at a certain point that this was becoming obsessive and I stopped answering them. Always with a view to, you know, thinking that she'd get over it and then maybe we'd be able to have kind of normal exchanges again. But at a certain point, even that became obvious it wasn't that wasn't going to happen. And after a few months, these emails were coming in many, many a day. Uh, I began to get quite worried. And then, but they still, they were innocuous in themselves. They were, they were just sort of chatty, gossipy things. And then I think what happened, she, she must have suddenly decided that I was not going to be answering ever. And this was months after I'd last answered any. And overnight, they turned into hate mail of a, a really violent nature. Um, and a series of accusations started sort of being built up. And she started initially. She accused me of plagiarizing her work in my own fiction. Then she started emailing these other two p- women, the, the, my agent and this editor that she had worked with for a bit. Um, and she accused the three of us of being a. It sounds very crazy of being, uh, and, and but this was typical. One of the things that that, that evolved was a sudden uh, anti-Semitism. She had shown no sign of this at all, but suddenly she became virulently anti-Semitic and accused us of being a Jewish conspiracy that had stolen 
work to sell to uh, other Iranian writers. She was an Iranian-American, uh, and uh, she accused us of having sold her work to these other Iranian-Americans. And then she proceeded from there to accuse me of various forms of sexual misconduct, not not with her, but with, with other people in the class that she had been in. And then she started talking about uh, an experience, a rape that she uh, she claimed to have been raped at a magazine where she worked and she started trying to associate me with this not accusing me of doing it but accusing me of having set it up having had her drugged and raped it was very mad and it, it wouldn't have I, I, I wouldn't have been all that I mean I would have been concerned whatever but she started then circulating these things to everyone she could think of who was associated with me she would send emails to magazines I was associated with or uh, employers. Uh, she posted things online and she told one of these other women that she was going to ruin me um, and she basically seemed to set out to do that. She conducted a kind of uh, email destruction campaign. Well, let me, uh, an, an internet destruction campaign, yes. And let me, yeah, let me just interrupt just because I want... Um... I feel like it would be helpful for listeners to get an idea of the uh, venomousness <laughs> uh, nature of these emails. So I figured, I, I, if you don't mind, if I, w- if I could read just a quick excerpt from your book. Yeah. Uh, these are emails from, Nas- you, you call her Nasreen. This is a, yes. um, you know, what is it, a pseudonym or whatever you use yeah. for her. But uh, these are her emails to you. And I'm just going to yeah. read a few of them just so we can get a, the listeners can get a general idea of what we're dealing with here. Yeah. Uh, so she says, good morning. You pose as an intellectual, but you're a corrupt thief. Do you have to be the stereotype of a Jew? James, oh, I see all the white male writers are doing it too. I want your apartment because you owe it to me because you were miserable and you sucked my nectar and didn't help me when you should have. What is wrong with your people? Uh, she says, Look, Muslims are not like their Jewish counterparts who quietly got gassed and then cashed in on it. My people are crazy motherfuckers, and there will be hell to pay for what your people have done to them. And on and on it goes. I mean, it, this is this is pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, it's intense, and those are the those are from relatively close to the beginning and relatively uh, you know relatively sort of mild compared with where she ended up, which was uh, basically death threats against me and my children and um, these other two women who she was also uh, pursuing. And um, it became absolutely terrifying. So, okay, so let me ask you, when did you first feel real fear? Do you know what I'm saying? Like at the beginning, I know how you you, you write about this process of um, trying to measure uh, how toxic this is, you know, like at what point, yeah. did it, at what point did it turn for you? Well, it was, it was, it, it, there were several sort of, um, stations along the way. I mean, the first, you know, there was the first, there was a kind of just the disturbed feeling of this being somebody who's obsessed with, with me, but not yet trying to destroy me. Then, then there was that kind of overnight turning into hate mail. And that, that was, that was frightening in its own way, just in the sense that, Suddenly, you feel that there is this this force out there that is violently antagonistic towards you, and that's that's scary. Even if you don't feel imminently in danger, 
And then as she started very methodically and very sort of cleverly uh, sending things to other people with accusations against me, uh, with very, very emotive language, very, very um, dangerous kind of language to be at the receiving end of, if you're, if, especially if you're a man, to be to have, even if you're not being accused of rape, just to have the word rape used in connection with you is, is, is a scary thing and a, a very disturbing thing. And then progressing from there to actual threats of violence. So, so each each of those each of those moments sort of brought in new dimensions of of fear. And she I mean, she kept changing the nature of what she was doing. She kept sort of evolving. I mean, there was one period where she was using um, basically posing as me on online, forwarding articles from newspapers as if for me, she would put in the, in the sender box, she would put my name and email address and send it to somebody with a, and as usually an obscene message as if from me. Um, so there were, there, there were, there were all kinds of things, all kinds of ways that she kept, um, refreshing, recreating what she was doing. Uh, so, well, that's the thing about it though, is that the internet, uh, presents, a lot of opportunities for somebody who is uh, unhinged to um, harass somebody. I mean, that's what it underscores, you know, especially like what you've lived through uh, strikes me as a, as a nightmare that is particularly frightening for uh, a writer. I mean, it's like the ultimate contemporary writer who teaches nightmare. You know, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I certainly can't admit it was nightmare. Ugh. And there is something about the, there, there does seem to be some, new kind of uh, malice and mischief that the internet has made possible. Right, right. Uh, I'm not sure if the internet had, didn't exist. I'm not sure whether I, I would have had any, any kind of... I mean, sure, there were stalkers before the internet. There were people who would phone you up or, or send you letters. But, I mean, a, 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 an epistolary stalking is a rather laborious thing. And there's something about the just the the immediacy of, of an email that it's just thought to your, you know, the, the, the stalker's thought processes become sort of immediately delivered to the victim um, without any kind of intervening time or anything uh, that, that I think encourages a certain kind of pathology. I, 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 I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a psych psychiatrist. I don't, I don't, I, I can just give you my, my intuitions about it, but I, I feel that there is there are certain kinds of people who might not have been inclined to this behavior before the internet and the internet, made it internet feasible. Yeah, the yeah. internet enables it. Yeah. Well, and the thing too that strikes me, uh, and this is going to perhaps sound a little bit strange uh, to hear, but she's she's good at it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a there's a skill level and a psychological. Um, knowingness, you know, you allude to it several times throughout the course of the book, but you know, some of these people who, um, you know, they call them trolls on the internet sometimes. And, um, you know, the borderline personality disorder, but there's like this strange intuition and ability for them to tap into, uh, fear and to understand it in some way. I mean, did you ever get that sense that like, Oh my God, I'm dealing with somebody who's not only, um, attacking me, but is, but is good at attacking me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, she was a natural. I mean, um, 
well, I mean, one of the the reasons I had wanted to help her in the first place was that she she was somebody who knew how to use language. So she had she was she was a good writer. She had a had a real gift, and um, so so she could use language in the emails in a very effective way. But beyond that, she did, she just had a kind of yeah, she had a sort of sixth sense for the various ways in which you can terrorize somebody uh, over the internet because of it's multiplying force. I mean, if you if you if you if you post something, say on Amazon about somebody's book, um, which also makes accusations against them as a person, as she did with me, she's putting me immediately in the position of wondering who's going to read this, how many people, how how widespread is it, how much damage has been done to me, and so I felt acted upon by this force that was able to kind of generate huge amounts of paranoia on, on my side with, with, with no difficulty at all. And she seemed to have a real gift for contriving situations like that, which I, you know, never would have crossed my mind. I mean, I mean you know, I'd never been at the receiving end of, of that kind of thing. I've never heard of anyone else who had been. Well, I'll tell you for, for a writer to have somebody, um, that hostile and that skilled, uh, defaming you in Amazon reviews that I know for a fact that that would be tremendously difficult for any writer. It was a nightmare. And, 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 it, you know, there was Amazon, there are other sort of book sites. Then there was, I mean, I review books for the guardian, for instance. And I, I mean, she would post a comment on the guardian accusing me of having her drugged and raped and stealing her work. I mean, very crazy. And I don't know, that anybody reading it would have believed it, but there is this human tendency to uh, think that, you know, no smoke without fire. So right. even if he didn't do that, I imagine people thinking, you know, even if he didn't do that, he must've done something. And uh, it's very, very unsettling, very unsettling. And I think she, she, I think she understood that. I don't think she was necessarily bothered about whether people literally believed her. She just wanted to make trouble and wanted to, to tarnish, as she put it, tarnish my reputation and ruin me. Um, it, it was, uh, it, it, I, I'm, <laughs> it was very, very hard to take. Okay. So let's, let me ask you about personal interaction with her, particularly back at the beginning, because you obviously didn't have any indication, um, that she was going to, that things were going to go this road, uh, in the beginning. What was she like when you met her, what was she like when you had her in class as a student? Well, I taught her for one term in a, in a, uh, a fiction workshop, and she was quiet, and I thought very talented. She seemed reticent and serious, and all of those qualities were things that I, I you know, admired, and... Um, I, I, either I completely got her wrong and she wasn't ever the sort of uh, very uh, rather shy but poised, um, courteous, intelligent person that I thought she was, or she was that and she underwent some enormous change. And I, to this day, I really, I, I, I struggle to bridge the gap between the person that I first thought I knew and this, this stalker, uh, who emerged a few years later. 
Well, you know, there's something that you write in the book that I think speaks well to this. And, you know, it, it's one thing to deal with somebody who's unstable. Um, then, then it's another thing entirely to deal with them when you're their teacher and you're in that position where you, I guess you're in a position of power, whether the student and you're the teacher, that relationship and that power dynamic. Uh, and then it's another thing entirely to be dealing with somebody who is an unstable novelist or not an unstable writer. Um, and there's something that you said in the book, and I'll read the quote verbatim. You say, manuscripts are the embodiment of a writer's deepest drives and ambitions. Um, it, it's a powder keg. It's so loaded. You know, if you're, if you're dealing with somebody who is, um, you know, uh, mentally ill or, or prone to this kind of behavior somehow, and then you, you factor in a novel. <laughs> I mean, even writers who are not uh, dealing with this sort of thing or prone to this sort of behavior, uh, I know what it's like, you know, handing a manuscript over. It's, it's very emotional and very yeah. powerful, and it makes you, very, makes you feel very vulnerable. So if you have somebody like Nazreen, um, you know, who, who's in that situation, it sort of makes sense to me how it could tip. Yeah. That's absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it is this very kind of concentrated little piece of yourself. And the thing is, I was very encouraged. I mean, I, I, I told her it was great. And although my agent didn't think it was ready to take on, I mean, it, it was still at a very formative stage. It wasn't really uh, close to being finished. Uh, this other editor that uh, my agent sent it to, you know, felt it was it was um, good enough to be worth working with her. And for a while, it did all seem to be proceeding in a in a, in a very positive way. And and at that point, there were just no indications of this. I I didn't get any indications uh, that she was unstable. Um, but what angered so, her? What ang was it? Was it? When well, you I think it was because I I broke off contact with her. Yeah. Seems to um, that seems to have been the thing, but well, I guess there's one other thing which might have fed in and it might have fed into the actual the way she expressed her anger um, as this kind of this 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 bizarre idea of uh, a conspiracy to steal her work and sell it to other authors. Around the time when she was trying to finish the book, there were these two or three novels published by young Iranian American women. And I, uh, it's not hard to imagine how how somebody might feel under, who's who's writing. I think the the novels were, I haven't read them, but I believe they were, at least one of them was uh, covering similar ground to her novel. It was sort of um, the last days of the Shah in Iran uh, at the time of the revolution. And I, speaking from my own experience, I'm always a little bit, whenever I'm working on anything, I'm always a little bit nervous that somebody's going to kind of write another novel on the same subject and come out with it before me. Or something sure. like that. And I think most writers are prone to a little bit of that kind of uh, slightly neurotic um, imagining. But um, so when these books came out, I think they must have fed straight into that with her and must have made her feel, you know, that she had been preempted, although I think actually the, the real effect would have been just to make the market more receptive to anything she might have produced. But um, So I think that there was that too, that sense that suddenly these other books started appearing, which were on uh, a, a similar subject. And she was upset about that. And she kind of dealt with being upset by creating this uh, ridiculous scenario of... Uh, a kind of underground 
black market in students' uh, work that, that I was somehow a major bandit. Uh, the kingpin. <laughs> yeah, I was a kingpin of this, this, this uh, circle of profiteers, Jewish profiteers. I mean, the anti-Semitic thing was the most bizarre part of it in many ways. Uh, that she, let me she ask, suddenly let me ask revealed that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's particularly vicious and um, blatant. You know, she doesn't. There, there's nothing nuanced about it. No, no, uh, it's all the kind of Hitler was right. Uh, you know, it's about as crude as it could possibly be. So, okay, so do you think that that was an expression of how she actually felt, or do you think she was just trying to upset you, or does it matter? My, my, my. I mean, I have no way of knowing. My theory is that it began as trying to upset me, and that having having sort of broadcast those words, she probably felt felt shock at herself. I mean, I, although I don't I don't know, and 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 then, but rather than retract, decided to double down and and kind of wrote herself into a corner as 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 a, as a sort of violent anti-Semite. And once she'd kind of adopted that. Persona, whether whether it was completely fabricated or only partially fabricated or not fabricated at all, but w- once she got going, she wasn't going to go back, uh, and she just kept she kept on on that on that on that path and expanded it from from anti just sort of crude anti-Semitism into uh, this global. Uh, attack that I was not only you know to be to be vilified as a Jew, but I was responsible for the problems in the Middle East, and I was um, depriving her and her country of uh, money and all the rest of it. And did this make you? Did this make you re-examine? I mean, I guess it did because I read I read in the book, and, and you obviously traveled to Jerusalem as a part of this, um, as a part of the writing of this book. But can you talk about how it? it it made you re-examine your relationship with Judaism. Uh, I believe I remember you saying that you had kind of an abstract understanding of uh, that part of your identity. But did, yeah. did did this experience give you any clarity or a new understanding of of, of that particular aspect of yourself? Well, it, it 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 concentrated my mind on it in a way that nothing ever had. I mean, it wasn't. I'm not a practicing Jew. I'm not a I'm not religious in any way at all. I was brought up in a completely assimilated household. Uh, although, you know, my, both my parents um, described themselves as Jews, but they had a complicated relationship to it too, as they were also uh, at one time practicing Christians. So I had a somewhat complicated uh, relationship to, to my Judaism, um, but basically hadn't been terribly interested in that side of things uh, until I... I before I met Nazarene, I'd begun to be somewhat interested in it. And then finding myself at the receiving end of this uh, this kind of language um, and this attitude was forced me to think about it again. In, in a way, it, it didn't upset me in the way that the other attacks did because I don't feel vulnerable as a Jew living, you know, in spending my life divided between the Catskills and New York City. I don't, I, I don't feel terribly vulnerable as a Jew, you know? <laughs> right. Um, so I, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate that side of things, but nevertheless, um, just being at the receiving end of an unremitting onslaught of anti-Semitism that was often couched in a kind of 
political terms um, made me wonder, made me think about 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 what it what it was and what, what, how representative she was uh, of you know any kind of larger political attitude and and it made me think about um, the politics of it. Uh, and 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 I had I wanted to go to Jerusalem to visit. I'd never been to Israel, and I had been sort of interested in going. But this sort of galvanized me, and I actually took a trip. Yeah, I just I uh, went. I'm not Jewish, but I went to Israel um, with you know a somewhat similar curiosity last fall. I was doing book research and was there for just a few days. But a very fascinating place, and you know I've had conversations on this show, or at least one conversation, and I'm forgetting exactly with whom. But, uh, you know, the issue of anti-Semitism, like broadly, not with, you know, not specifically um, related to your experience, but broadly is is a great uh, mystery to me. Like, what in the world does this stem from? Like, where does it come from and why does it exist? You know, it's like so, so puzzling to me how anybody could fall into that. And I, I just want to know the origins. Like, do you have a – do you find any answers to those questions? I, I mean, I, part of the book is an attempt to to to, to look at that. There, there are there are various different kinds of origins. I mean, there's some there's there's the, 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 there are origins within Christianity. Um, you know, the Jews as Christ killers. Uh, that's largely the origin of it in 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 Europe. Um, Anti-Semitism from a kind of Middle Eastern perspective is. Is, is a different matter. It's more, it's more political, but it has it carries some of the same edge as the as the European anti-Semitism. It's not like it tends not to be like other forms of racism. It has it has a very peculiar flavor and intensity of its own. It, it often has it often sort of conflates. It, she treats its victims as both as both an overdog and an underdog. Um, it's it's an expression both of kind of uh, bullying and and fear. It's it's quite it's quite curious, quite unique, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and certainly that was true of Nazarene's um, version of it. Um, but I don't think anyone has ever really got to the bottom of it. Maybe, um, maybe you can't. I mean, you know, it's like I find myself so exasperated. It just seems so like there's another part of the book where you're talking to a detective about this, which I, I want to get to uh, at some point, you know, but you go to the law and I remember you showed the detective the emails that she had been sending to you and what struck him and what upset him was her use of foul language. Yeah. Um, and you know, certain. This is the way. This is where I come down on language. Is that if someone's using uh, words uh, in a hateful way directed at a person, that I have a problem with and will take offense to. You know, hate speech. Yeah. But if somebody's just using expletives, you know, I couldn't care less. And and so I don't know. It just always strikes me what people fixate on, and um, I find myself. I don't know. I guess I, I don't know. Were were you? Like, how did you feel about that particular instance where this guy's looking at all this and what he finds yeah. offensive is that she's using, you know, she's dropping F-bombs. It's like, well, who cares, man? Let's get to the real thing, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, my, you know, my, uh, 
idea about the police is formed from shows like The Wire, and so it was very surprising to find an NYPD detective who's offended by, you know, somebody right. saying, saying fuck or something. I mean, it just uh, it just came as a, as a complete surprise to me. But you know, that's fair enough. I mean, uh, if that's if that if that upset him, that's you know, I I, I wanted him to empathize i suppose with me as much as possible and if that was a way in that was fine with me yeah but it did surprise me yeah i mean and i I guess i don't don't mean to conflate somebody being offended by language with like you know the the anti-semitism stuff or whatever no 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 it's a quite different thing yeah it's a quite different thing but it's interesting and and depressing (laughs) uh at the same time and um, I, I kind of I guess before we, we, we go any further, I want to ask you about the issue of disclosure, mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much about this that, you know, w- that you write about with regard to how you negotiated internally with yourself. And I, I want to ask you about the moment when you decided to go to your wife and say, this is happening. Uh, like, let's start there. Like, how did you communicate that to her? When did you do it? And what was her reaction? I mean, there was nothing that it wasn't in any way a secret from my wife or my family that I was in touch with that, you know, that I was in touch with this person. Um, she, she, I'm trying to remember, this is six years ago. I, you know, initially we were just sort of emailing and then I, think yeah well at one point um my phone is just falling off she sent me her manuscript and we arranged to meet for coffee uh and that was the one the single time that i met her was in in new york for their coffee and she handed me her manuscript and i remember talking to my wife about her then because you know i'm always a little bit apprehensive about reading people's manuscripts um but you know nothing much came of that i don't think that i i realized there was a problem until i went away with my wife and kids for four months to france to do a guidebook and we were mostly staying in rural places that didn't have any internet connection so i'd go days without seeing my email and then, you know, all of us would go to an internet cafe and I would go online and there would be, you know, 50 emails from Nazarene. And I was ta- at that point, you know, it became quite a conversation. And I was more concerned than my, I mean, you know, my wife thought it was kind of weird and, but didn't, didn't get terribly sort of concerned about it. And she really didn't get concerned about it until it turned into, into out and out hate mail. And, and even then her concern was, you know, just that I was so, um, I was I was I was in shock, uh, and from from then on, I just sort of was in a increasing state of shock and and, and uh, real pain when 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 things got very very bad, and I needed all all the sort of support I could possibly get, and my wife was was there for me. And so what about, what about the implication of your agent? Because I know, you know, Nazreen began emailing her and things got ugly quickly Yeah, uh, there. Like what, how did your agent respond when this was happening? Well, she was, she, 
Um, this was fairly early on. Well, as soon as as soon as the hate mail began, and within a few days of that, she emailed Nasreen emailed my agent. First of all, um, saying kind of terrible things about me and my how I slept with all the students in my class, and you know various kind of sexual practices that I went in for, and and my agent felt she had to call me and let me know. Um, but almost immediately. The, the hatred was also directed at my agent herself, uh, and she started getting threatening phone calls and, and, e- and emails. And she was very, very upset and very alarmed and wanted to know what on earth was going on and what explanation I had. And I was extremely embarrassed uh, to have ever, you know, introduced Nazarene to my agent and to have, uh, you know, unintentionally. Um, dragged her into this crazy uh, scenario, and then it spread to the the, the third person, the, the editor to whom my agent had sent Nasreen. She started getting threatening letters, and she was terribly upset. And um, it's been an ordeal for all three of us. Um, and I feel, you know, I, 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 it's it's impossible to. I mean. It, it's an impossible situation. I mean, I, obviously, if I had known she was at all crazy, I would never have. Um, I, w- I would never have sent her to anyone else. Uh, but even though I didn't know, I still feel responsible to some extent and, and implicated and extremely horrible about about having been the unwitting agent for their distress, and they've been through terrible times. So let's talk about the stress and what this does to a person physically, uh, obviously, mm-hmm. and, and mentally, you know, psychologically. But, um, you know, what, how, how did the stress of this manifest in you? Because, you know, talk about the, um, you know, you mentioned insomnia, anxiety, yeah. depression, paranoia, and then eventually uh, a collapsed lung. <laughs> I mean, uh, Well, no, the collapsed lung was not actually... Uh, uh, it wasn't something that actually happened to me in this in this particular uh, experience. That was something um, that had happened to me once before. Ah, okay. Uh, and and I was um, I was saying that I, that I, 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 I wrote in the book that at one point I had been thinking of transferring that that prior experience into my description of the present stress, just in order to give it some kind of uh, reality or some some substantiality, but that I had realized that I that I I had to tell it exactly the way it was and I couldn't I couldn't play around with with uh, with you know the sequence of things at all the story either had to be absolutely literally true or or it wasn't going to be possible to tell it so I just brought that on as an analogy for the how burdened I felt but um, so so no I didn't have a collapsed lung as a part as a part of this particular experience that came that was that was uh, another experience uh, but all the other things, um, the paranoia, the depression, the insomnia, were just the continuum of my life for several years. Almost the, the worst part of it, though, was um, not having any control over um, my own thought processes. So, Feeling, go ahead. Um not being able to not think about what was going on, not being able to not dwell continually on this 
really bizarre, really sort of horrible and really frightening thing that was going on that somebody was trying to to destroy me and was continually thinking up new forms of malice uh, to wield against me. And so it became very hard not to be in a continual state of wondering, well, what's she going to do next? What's going on now? Who's she writing to now? Uh, am I not hearing from this or that editor because they had some email denouncing me, which was you know, part of her, her, her strategy, uh, was, to, was to send these, these um, denouncing emails to, to my employers and, and agents and various other people connected with me. So not to have any kind of respite from your own thoughts is a, is a, is a, very, um, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, you want to think about something else. In my case, as being a writer, I wanted to get on with work, with writing. I couldn't write about anything else. I couldn't. I couldn't think about anything else. I couldn't concentrate on, you know, simple things like playing with my kids. There was always this this problem just brewing away, and it, because there was never anything I could do about it, I tried. I, I went to the FBI. The police were involved. Uh, it, but it, nothing. I mean, she was sent to cease and desist letters from lawyers. The police called her up. They couldn't arrest her because she had moved to California, and they would have had to extradite her to New York. Because and because it was a misdemeanor, what she's doing, aggravated harassment, is a misdemeanor at the level she was doing. It's not a felony. They couldn't justify the expense of uh, extraditing her to New York to face charges. They told me that if she were in New York, they would arrest her immediately. But they wouldn't um they wouldn't fly her in so it was this intractable situation uh and it just kept going on and on and on and it at a certain point it just got under my skin to the point where i just wasn't able to think of anything else um and uh eventually i just started writing the book I was going to say, what about that moment? I mean, at, at some point you just decided, like, this is all I'm thinking about anyway. And, and clearly um, th there's a story here to tell that has, you know, resonance with, with uh, contemporary life. Yeah. But did you, I mean, did you sit down with your agent and say, I think I'm going to do this? Did you have to consider legal issues? Was, was there any fear of, you know, if I write about this, it's going to open up another can of worms or anything like that? Well, I, it, it, I mean, it, it began as a, actually, I, try, I was trying to, at a certain point, I thought I should write a, a document that I could just post online outlining um, the, the sort of basic elements of the story so that the next time, uh, you know, a, an employer called me into a room and said, you know, we've had a strange email about you, I could just say, well, you know, here's the document that explains everything rather than going through the very, for me, very uncomfortable situation of having to explain it to somebody. It's such a strange story. It requires um, so many, uh, it, 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 it's hard to tell. It's, it, it twists and turns in so many bizarre ways and there are so many pieces of it. And you sort of have to see the emails themselves to understand it, to understand both their kind of malice and their craziness and their, Power. Well, I was going to, pardon me for interrupting, but I was going to say, because what makes, what made me anxious reading it uh, is the fact of, of, of you trying to make your case. Yeah. Because I know how difficult and layered uh, an explanation it is. And when you get into conversations with people, particularly like a prospective employer or somebody you're currently working for, um, and particularly if they don't know you extremely well. 
uh, just the, the 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 difficulty of making that explanation lends itself to I don't know just great discomfort and then like you say people always say where there's smoke there's fire so yeah the stress of that you know and, and having very, to make the case I I I wanted to I mean I imagine myself in your shoes like going in like an attorney with the evidence and being like look at these emails you know like this yeah. is what the deal is like you had to have really had yourself rehearsing uh, how to make your case. Yeah, and it's very difficult. You end up sounding very crazy. Um, you sound as if you're trying to hide something. It's, it's very hard to strike a tone when, you, when, you, when you're making a, a document in your own defense. It's very hard to strike a tone that doesn't sound defensive, that doesn't right. sound... I mean, that's what it is. And, 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 and I realized I actually couldn't do it, and I, wasn't, and I, and I realized I wasn't going to do it. It wasn't going to work to post something like that online. But in the course of trying to produce that, I, I began to get interested in it as, as a story. And I also began to feel that just the act of beginning to write about it, beginning to set things down, was giving me some relief from the torment itself, even while it was ongoing. I, you know, it was giving me some ability to sort of get a grip on it. And the more I wrote, the more other aspects of my life and other things that interested me seemed to kind of begin to gravitate around it as a subject. And I realized I could write a book. And I thought, well, I'll write the book. You know, I, 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 di I didn't think that I necessarily would try to publish it, but, I, but it was helpful to me just to be writing it. Uh, I wasn't trying to struggle to write something else with this on my mind. I was I was writing about the thing that was on my mind, and it was came out of the absolute. The, you know, most of the other things I've written have not been uh, written in the midst of whatever they were about. They've usually been written at a somewhat of a distance. But this one was written right from the the kind of ongoing uh, experience. Yeah, and, it feels that way too when you're reading. There's a real immediacy, you know. Uh, well, thank you. I, I mean, I take that as a compliment, but I, 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 and I think it needed to have that. Um, you know, so I just wrote, and I didn't, I didn't actually talk to my agent about it until I had it, I had a draft of it finished. Um, and and it, you know, at that point, I had to consider all those other things that you mentioned about, you know, how do you do this legally? Uh, I mean, what are the what are the kind of legal constraints about writing about a real person using actual emails? Uh, and and all that was quite complicated and had to be dealt with. But I I didn't even think about that and, uh, while I was writing it. Yeah. And then what about like did did this because of the immediate nature of things and because of the all-consuming nature of what you were dealing with? Uh, was the writing of this book easier than other books or harder or, or about the same? <laughs> well, in some ways it was easier because I knew what I was doing. I mean, I knew the the story was I didn't have to make up anything. Mm. And it was, I mean, other things, I've, I haven't written a book of nonfiction before. Everything I've done has been either poetry or fiction, uh, apart from these guidebooks. But, but um, so uh, the story itself was, was, was there. The, the narrative was I didn't have to invent. And also because I was, once I got into it, I was very, very driven to do it. It was giving me active sort of comfort to do it. So in many ways, it was an easy book to write. I wrote it quite. I wrote the first draft quite quickly, um, and it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. A, it wasn't a great struggle. 
but on the other hand, I mean, it was, it's just I was in the midst of a really un, unpleasant experience. So it's not something I look on, look back on with a kind of, you know, sentimental. Right. It's a period. Of it's time. a shame. It's a shame. This one, the one time that writing a book comes comes quickly and easily. It's got to be this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. Um, so. What about and the other thing I was thinking too about writing a book like this, uh, especially when you're sort of in the thick of it, is you know the I'm thinking compositional thoughts like structure and closure at the end of a narrative. Uh, and one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading is that like, oh my God, is there going to be like one big confrontation the way that it might happen in a novel or a more traditional narrative? And I'm wondering if you ever had a thought in your head related to the book or not that I need to just go confront this person in per, in person as opposed to via email? Like, Did you ever consider seeking her out and confronting her personally and asking her to stop? Not really. I mean, I'd been advised by, by uh, police and everybody not to, you know, not to respond in any way at all. Uh, one of the people that she was stalking did, in fact, send her a letter, a very nice, gracious letter, um, sympathizing with her and saying that she was, you know, she needed to get some psychiatric help. And, but in a very, you know, in a very, a very sympathetic way. Uh, and she got an absolutely vitriolic volley of abuse in, in, in response. So I don't think that anything could possibly have come from me actually uh, confronting her. Well, and that's, you know, brings up an interesting point for people listening is that if you, if, you know, if, if you have advice for somebody who might be getting harassed uh, in, um, on the internet, you know, cyber harassment or whatever, like the, what is the, what is the, the best way to respond? I, I, I wish I had an answer. It's, I mean, what, 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 as I said, what the police tell you is that you don't respond. Um, what everyone says is don't respond. Um, but that doesn't necessarily stop them. Um, I think my, my own, you know, my own decision was to be as public about it as I possibly could. I mean, I told everyone I, I, I could think of about it. I know since writing the book, I've, I've run into a surprising number of people who've had similar experiences. I mean, nothing on, on this scale, but have had experiences. And many of them have felt embarrassed or well, not embarrassed exactly, but somehow haven't, have, have felt that they can't talk about it to other people. And they seem grateful that, that, you know, here's someone who has kind of come out and just put it all down. Um, I I I I think their instinct has always you know had been to be very private about it, but I'm not sure that that's the that's the best thing. I I really don't know. It's it's not something that anybody seems to have an answer to. And what about the issue of mental illness? Because I think that's like that's another deft part of the book is where you know you're you're pretty honest about um, the thought processes, and one of them is you know this person is obviously not well in the head, but how do you you know, how do you categorize it and what, yeah. and what level of, um, not redemption, but does it, does it give her an excuse? Do you know what I'm saying? This person is yeah. harassing me. Is it wrong for me to feel angry, uh, you know, and, and to feel negatively about somebody who might just be sick? Like, where do you yeah. fall on that? Well, I think that's again, a very problematic question. And I, I did try to uh, deal with it, but I don't think there's an answer to it. 
and I couldn't answer it anyway. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't honestly, I've read a certain amount about the, psych, the psychology of it. I don't think anybody has a clear sense of what it is. Even I, I, the closest thing that I could, that I could find was, was the profile of, you know, what they call a borderline personality, which is somebody who is, uh, capable of functioning in the world uh, but is also capable of giving of allowing themselves to act in very very crazy ways and they're notoriously difficult to treat to to help um, uh, a, a, lot, a lot of therapists will go a long way out of their way not to have anything to do with them because they can be very very destructive they can be very vindictive it's a very difficult category because and certainly in the case of Nasreen, she was clearly aware of what she was, she was doing and she was deliberately doing it and she knew that it was, it was harmful and she was trying to do harm. And, and it seems to me that however, however much you might be able to attribute that to some kind of mental disorder, you, 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 you can hold them responsible for, for that too. And you have a right to hold them responsible for that. At least I felt that I did. But and I do hold her responsible, but I can also see that she she's unbalanced in some way, and I, I don't know quite how you square that. It's 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 it, it's very it's a very knotty issue, uh, right. very very intractable. Well, and I've read I mean I've read about borderline too a little bit. I mean it might mean it might be embarrassing to admit that it's probably like Wikipedia and or maybe maybe I can. Uh, redeem myself a little bit by saying that it was like uh, the Mayo Clinic's website or something. Right. But, you know, yeah, I was just, I, that. it's fascinating because, and, and I think I was actually reading about it with relation to uh, internet behavior and uh, the trolling that happens on comment boards and why certain people do this. And, you know, it's, it's an easy thing to become fascinated by if you spend any amount of time online and if you do it in an interactive capacity. And, um, you know, one of the things that I remember about Borderline is that a hallmark of people who have it. Uh, is that they can be in your presence for a very short amount of time and will have an uncanny ability to sort of zero in on um, points of weakness or things that bother you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they have, yes. like, they have like a very acute intuition or psychological, yeah. you know, uh, knowledge somehow. And it sounds like that fits with what she was. Uh, she she did have a. She, uh, it's hard to it's hard to sort of illustrate it, but there was a kind of uncanny. I felt that she had a kind of uncanny ability to yes to 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 find areas of vulnerability in me and exploit them. And um, I, I I often felt that I was in 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 some kind of uh combat with some 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 really sort of uh very very clever form of malignity right. i don't know how better to put it and uh i found myself kind of, you know even though i'm completely not a religious or superstitious person i you, you find yourself kind of reaching for the terms of of sort of Spells and sorcery and and um, some kind of dark magic. I mean, you, it, it, it feels as if you're in the grip of some not altogether natural power. Yeah, it's like it's one thing to just be dealing with somebody who's unhinged, but it's another thing to be dealing with somebody who's unhinged but who is also uh, highly intelligent. You know, yeah. it's, like, it's like the difference between like uh, you know, just to use like horror movie. Um, 
characters. It's like the difference between Jason and, and Hannibal Lecter. You know, like, right. like right. one guy's just in a hockey mask and he's nuts and he's walking around the woods killing yeah. people. And like then there's then there's somebody who's like actually got real psychological um, know how or something. Yeah. So did um did you ever consider reaching out to her family? Like, is that did they ever factor into it, or did you have any knowledge of who they were or where they were? I didn't. I mean, she. Well, she. She um, had a strange habit of, um, among many strange habits, of forwarding me email that she would write to other people, and sometimes that was her family. So I had some sense of of, of a family, um, and I, I I believe that when the police contacted her, they 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 initially tried to get through to her through her family. So I think her family had been a part of the picture, but I never. I didn't contact. I didn't feel that it was appropriate for me in any way to contact her family. I, I felt I, I I felt that nothing I could possibly do would would improve things. I, I I felt that it could only make anything everything worse, because some of the times she she some of the email that correspondence between herself and her family that she was forwarding to me was hate mail she was sending to her family so i had to assume that she wasn't exactly on great terms with them and then there were there were odd moments where she would accuse me of actually being in cahoots with members of her family uh of being you know having of having conspired with them to 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 do to wrong her in some way uh so that just always seemed to me like uh, a place not to go. Um, and then what about, I, but, what, and what about like the use of the, I mean, Nazreen again is a, a given name. It's not her actual name. Right. Is that a legal issue with the publisher or is that a decision you made to just, I don't know, as a courtesy or, or whatever? Well, I didn't, I didn't see any, I didn't, you know, this is not, the book is not in any way an attempt to attack her. In fact, I think it's quite a, sympathetic book towards her but um and i didn't see any point i I had no desire to kind of name her and make her identifiable um legally it doesn't actually seem to make a huge amount of difference uh whether i had named her or not Uh, although although the lawyers were in favor of not naming her as they they would as i would imagine they would be (laughs) yeah yeah but 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 um Yes, I, I mean I'm trying to remember the exact conversation about that. Uh, I think they were in favor, uh, but it never occurred to me to name her in the first place anyway. So I, I always wanted to use, uh, um, you know, invented names for as many of the people in the. In fact, every everybody in the book except for me, because I, I didn't see anything to be gained by naming by naming people. Um, so and where and where are things now? Like where, you know, the book. Well, if they're not, as you say, I mean, you, the book doesn't have a conventional ending because the story doesn't have a conventional ending. It doesn't. It hasn't ended. Um, yeah. Like things, what, what is happening with her now? Is she still in contact with you? Is she still trying to reach out to you? Um, she. She. The last I heard from her, she sort of graduated in, in my case from email to phone messages, and uh, the last I heard from her was actually in the summer, in August, a series of. Uh, unbelievably uh violent phone messages um and the 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 case has been taken up by the hate crimes uh, by a detective in the hate crimes unit of the nypd and he's been great but there's still not very much he can do although um at, at one point 
the tones of her emails and these messages and her emails to these other people got so violent. I mean, she was using the word murder. She was saying that she she was going to come to New York and murder me. And that really that really sort of got the attention of, of the police. And they this detective says at that point, well, they probably could extradite her. She might have kind of reached the level of, you know, uh, menace that, that they could extradite her. And I was in favor of him doing that. Unfortunately, he explained to us that what it would involve was they would bring her, they'd bring her to New York. They, you know, she would be brought in front of a judge, and that, um, and a trial date would be set. And in the interim, she would be let loose on the streets of New York. And the woman whom I called Paula in the book, who's um, not young—I mean, she's in her seventies—and she lives in New York, and she had these death threats from from Nasreen. She wasn't. She was understandably not very happy with that prospect of Nazarene being brought to New York and then let loose on the streets, and she thought it would be safer to uh, just to, to, to leave her in in LA. So I couldn't really argue with that, even though I would have preferred it if they if they had brought her over and and, and brought the whole brought brought her to trial, and because uh, I felt that that would be the only way that to bring this uh, situation to an end. But so, that hasn't happened. So it's still sort of ongoing, but I haven't heard from her for several months. And is she aware of the book? You have I, I have no idea. I, the book isn't out yet. I don't, I, I'm, you know, from, from what I've experienced with her in the past, I, I think it's if she, when she finds out about it, I'll know about it. She'll respond. Well, you'll have to read the Amazon review, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Um, well, I mean, I, I guess like, like, how has this changed you? Like, I remember, I think there's a line in the book where you mentioned that this experience has made you less certain. Uh, it has made you maybe less sure of your own perceptions, your own judgments of people. Um, do you have a sense of how it might have, you know, the experience might have changed you in some ways? Well, I, I feel that it has changed me. Um, it's, I originally wanted the subtitle of the book to be Notes on a Crisis um, rather than specifically about stalking. I mean, I feel like I've been through some some ordeal that has left scars on me. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm, I, I, I also sort of believe in the old Nietzschean saying that whatever doesn't kill, that which does not kill me makes me strong. So I, I'm, 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 I'm waiting for the feelings of strength to... to, to uh, <laughs> to emerge, but I do. I feel, you know, I, I, I do. It left me very uncertain about things. It left me very uncertain of my ability to judge people, to judge situations, to judge my own effect on people. Well, not not necessarily uncertain, but very curious about them, and 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 and, and curious to sort of probe into into those questions. And I think it has sort of made me a little a little darker in some way in my outlook well there's the, uh, there's I, the george Eliot line i underlined it in the book that you you include where uh, the george Eliot line is that uh what is it the last thing we learn in life is our effect on other people which i yeah. thought was particularly poignant you know? yes well i think i've been I've, I've maybe begun to learn something about that uh, in my own case um but uh you know I feel I feel having written the book has given me some sort of feelings of of um, 
I hate the word closure, but uh, but it's given me some some feeling of sort of liberation from 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 the experience. Well, it's a very it's a very good book. It's very um, frightening, <laughs> yeah. and it feels very of the moment. You know, it's easy. It's it, sadly it's easy to imagine. You know, and it's it's not something that seems completely out of whack. At least not in my world. So I congratulate you. Uh, on finding a way to kind of, uh, what is it, alchemize the experience into something useful. And I'm sure there's going to be people out there, like you, just like you said, who have gone through something similar and who can find some comfort in it. So uh, I, you know, I congratulate you. I wish you all the best. And I thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you so much. All right, folks, there you go. That is James Lasden. His book, once again, is called Give Me Everything You Have, a memoir available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And again, the official pub date is February 12th, 2013, February 12th. And you can find James online at jameslasden.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to get the app, the official app for this program, the Other People app. It is available for free for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It is, by my estimation, the best way to listen to this program, to keep up with all the new episodes, and to access... Uh, bonus features, the full archives, etc. So go get it. Uh, okay, uh, I think that's it. I'm going to try to uh, have a good attitude. I'm going to try to change my nature. I'm going to try to alter the fundamental core of my being. Please remember that Modigliani died of tubercular meningitis. Have I already done that one? And, uh, and that DeShiel Hammett died of lung cancer. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again soon. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy your writing. Enjoy your creative process. Enjoy your breathing. Look at your food intensely before eating it. Embrace your consciousness. Dance in a spiritual manner in a grassy field. I don't know what I'm saying. This is fuck. We're all... Damn it. <laughs> <laughs>